Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're discussing the film The Devil Wears Prada. And joining us today is our special guest, Alyssa Feller. So welcome, Alyssa. Hey, Alyssa. Hi, guys. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Of course. We're very excited to talk to you today. So can you get us started by telling us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Yeah, totally. So I just finished up a contract working on Frog and Toad over at or on Apple TV Plus. Yes. And I wore a couple hats over there. Um, I kind of started out as script coordinator slash writer assistant, or as my contract officially called me, writer coordinator, which okay. is kind of a fun meshup of the, the titles. <laughs> While I was working, I also uh, on the show, I also got a chance to write one of the episodes as a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. And then uh, as my contract was coming to a close a bit, my boss, our executive producer, showrunner, asked me to stay on as his assistant. So I also was uh, a showrunner assistant. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, So are you able to kind of break down each of those roles or I guess if they overlapped to however they overlapped, just kind of what your day to day was? Yeah, totally. So the day to day really depended on what part of production we were in yeah when I put on my writer assistant hat (laughs) I would uh attend all the writers meetings which uh this was definitely a COVID era show so Mm -hmm. uh a lot of zooms yeah um but whenever uh our writers would have a meeting I would be there taking notes and then just distributing those notes making sure that they had uh, just a record of everything we talked about in the meeting and those Mm -hmm. were uh, going back to the beginning of the show. So um, for those who aren't familiar, Frog and Toad is based on a book series by the author and the illustrator Arnold LaBelle. So we really were kind of working from scratch because those stories are pretty short little stories. So we mm-hmm. all of a sudden had to fill out a uh, like 12 or 13 minute episode. So from the beginning, we had to think about, okay, you know, what other characters can be in this world? Uh, yeah. What are some of the other settings? What are just, you know, what more can we add to this world? So a lot of it from day one was, I think we literally sat down on a, on a whiteboard and said, okay, what are other animals that can live in this world? What are some personality types? If Frog and Toad live in like a small little town or village, what other uh, places can they visit? The ice cream shop, the post office, the movie theater, stuff like that. So that was me kind of in my writer assistant mode, um, script coordinator mode. Basically, I was responsible for the script kind of in every form and every stage of the script. Yeah. So what we would do would uh, our writers would write up a premise, which was like a a one page kind of summary of what the episode would be. We'd send it to Apple. They would give us a yay or nay. Uh, Then we'd go to outline first draft, second draft. Uh, We never really call them final drafts, record drafts, as in drafts ready to be recorded. Whenever one of those drafts was ready to send out, I would uh, do a nice proofread. I would distribute them. Um, There was a couple, you know, executives who were all had to be uh, on those emails. Um, I was also keeping track of all the scripts at all the different stages. So I had a couple different spreadsheets and trackers of um, okay, so this episode is in premise, and this one is in first draft, and this one is done, and then this one is starting the storyboard process, and we're supposed to uh, send Apple 
the script on this day and then they have those three or four days to respond so they need to get it back by this date and then by this date we get it back to the writer so it was a lot of keeping track of of everything and sometimes poking people like hey we needed to yeah. send that script out or hey <laughs> apple we kind of needed that uh script or that note back yeah, um yeah. so that was mostly in kind of that pre-production as we were okay. writing uh once we started i guess in the production phase, what we would do is just kind of like in live action shows how there might be a meeting between costume designers and the set people and the the prop designers. Uh, We would have a design meeting where we would have the writer of the episode, our executive producer, and then our uh, supervising director, our uh, art director, our prop designers, costume, well, the character designers, and basically go through every single asset, every single background, every single prop and basically make sure we're all on the same page uh you think you know animation is unlimited and it is but yeah. uh it takes so much time to get everything done we all want to be on the same page so like one of our first episodes one of the characters has an ice cream cone i remember us uh, i remember them saying okay we have an ice cream cone what kind of ice cream cone is it a waffle cone is it a square cone how does this cone look okay we have an umbrella is it a big parasol is it a beach umbrella is it striped is it polka dotted what color is it and basically everyone had to agree on it just so, you know, what I think of an umbrella and what you think of an umbrella might be different. So they wanted to all get on the same page. And I'd be in those meetings because no matter what, there always seemed to be some kind of script change. Like yeah. um, I remember we had one episode where one of the characters I think is dusting. And originally the line was something like, oh, uh, was the chair always the screen? because he's dusting. Um, and then uh, I think in the production meeting, it was like, oh, we haven't actually decided what color that couch is going to be. So can we change the line to, uh, has the couch always been this color? Okay. Uh, go and change it, distribute it to everyone else to make sure we all have the same script. I remember we also had one episode where it kind of had this really ambitious idea that it would be um, daytime and then sunset and then dusk and then civil twilight and then night. And I think our background designer was kind of like, oh, we'll give you sun up and sundown. Yeah. <laughs> like, Please yeah. don't do this to me. <laughs> exactly. So it's once again, going through the script and changing it. And it's those little things, but you know, everyone, the script needs to, you know, be uniform. Right. So once again, that's me to go in, change it, uh, distribute it to everyone to make sure we have the same thing. Um, and by the way, uh, important thing to note yeah. in live action, writer's assistant and script coordinator are usually two different roles, two different okay. people. In animation, I've seen some animated shows where they will have two people, but more than likely it is the same person. Okay. Interesting. Ask if yeah. That's common. Yeah. yeah. And I've had a lot of like people from live action say, Oh my God, aren't you so overwhelmed? Like, like you should be asking for like a raise. That's two different jobs. And just kind of the way animation works. It's just okay. a very long process. Um, it personally, I never felt too overwhelmed, but um, for live action people out there, if you're asked to do two, both of those rules, uh it's usually a two-person role uh, okay. animation it's usually one person okay also i was really involved in records uh so whenever we would record our with our voiceover artists so i would make sure we got the script to our voice director who would then distribute it to the actor uh, but i was also communicating constantly with her when it came to any kind of um line changes or anything for example that that line about the couch being a different color we might have recorded it so that's one we have pickups. So okay. pickups are a whole other set of spreadsheets. Uh, but basically <laughs> we had, oh yeah, we had a spreadsheet and a tab for each episode. And uh, basically anytime a line changed, I would go in, change it in the script, make change it in the pickup tracker, 
and then just note it because, you know, usually we record, you know, especially with our frog and toad a lot with our side characters um, yeah. a couple of times, but we needed to make sure that that was noted, that if okay. there is a pickup, they need to do it. Oh, and then I uh, wrote one of the episodes too, which was really cool. Yeah. New writers ask, how can I write or become a writer? Kind yeah. of a common advice is, oh, be a writer assistant, be a script coordinator. Unfortunately, the pipeline isn't as direct these days. Okay. Unfortunately, just with smaller rooms and right. smaller episode orders, you know, I think someone told me once like, oh, back when Full House was going and they had like 22 episodes. Sure, they had plenty of episodes to give a writer assistant. Right. But when you have Ted Lasso and there's 10 episodes, there might yeah. not be enough time. But yeah. I got really lucky. I know in that very first uh, interview I had with our uh, showrunner, executive producer, a guy named Raha Pogi, I mentioned, you know, I want to write. And he said, oh, you know, it might be a possibility, but, you know, I can't guarantee anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always kept my ear open. I always tried to, in writers' meetings, uh, luckily they, you know, everyone in the room was very much just, you know, we like good ideas no matter who it comes from. So yeah, that's awesome. I usually let the writers pitch, do what they need to. And if there's a lull in the conversations and I was, I'd say, oh, well, maybe this. Yeah. I just try to contribute what I could. Really, our room was our executive producer, showrunner. Uh, a story editor and two staff writers. And then every fifth episode or so, we brought in a freelance writer. So I think we had about eight of them throughout the run of the show. And just one day I was in a meeting and um, our showrunner and story editor were kind of going through the schedule and trying to figure out which writer will be assigned to every episode. And just at one point they said, oh, and Alyssa can write this one. I was like, oh, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) That's my name. That is me. So that was um, really exciting. And, uh, it, it, it kind of feels like a little bit of a rare opportunity these days, but yeah. I, I got really lucky to work with like a really good group of people. Mm-hmm. Is it common for animation? Do they typically have smaller staffs where you're wearing those different hats? Or do you think this was a really unique situation for you where you got to move from script coordinator or writer assistant freelance writer to showrunner's assistant? So this was my first time working in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. So from personal experience, I don't know. Right. Um, from what I've heard, sometimes I, I can say these days, animation writing, specifically preschool animation, freelance writers are becoming more frequent. There's a couple okay. of shows I know of where they don't even really have staff writers. They just wow. it's all bring freelance. in all freelance, wow. especially a lot of um, there's a lot of like non-union, which is okay. a animation guild, non-union stuff. The, the pipeline of writer assistant to writer. Um, I, these are, I think it just still depends on yeah. your showrunner and how lenient they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got lucky too. We did, uh, we did a lot of episodes. So there was that uh, room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. So we always like to ask our guests kind of how they got to where they're at in their career now. So just like what you did in school, maybe other things you've worked on that led, led to you getting here in your career. Yeah. So I kind of always wanted to be a writer. Um, I remember just as a kid and a teen, I I just was a a big reader. Yeah. And I always thought like, oh, I'm going to be the next great novelist. Yes. (laughs) I never just uh, had the ability to kind of sit down and do it. Mm -hmm. Also in uh, high school and college, I thought maybe I'd be a playwright. That also didn't really work out. Uh, Briefly in college, I was a journalism major. Oh, Got to be like the next great investigative journalist. Um, That also just... You know, took a few classes, just realized it wasn't for me. Yeah. Meanwhile, I was some of my favorite shows were actually like late night variety shows, yeah. like uh, The Daily Show with John Stewart and of The Colbert yeah. Report were two, mm-hmm. yeah, super vital shows to me. Uh, I think I remember reading something that was like, oh, you know, millennials these days, kids these days, uh, they don't read 
newspapers or watch the news. They just watch the Daily Show. And I was like, no, that's not true. And then realistically, it's like, yeah, well, they help me understand the news is what right. I appreciated about them. Yes. But, you know, I always like that. And then, you know, stuff like, like Saturday Night Live. But I never really had any concept like how it would be possible to work on a show like that. Right. Like yeah. I uh, was born and raised and went to college in Florida. And that's just so far removed from all of that. Right. In college, uh, one year I got Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. <laughs> one of my favorite books and it sounds so basic but I kind of read it and realized oh this is what I want to do and this is how I do it yeah Uh, so I ended up being a theater major uh, got a BA in theater studies which is a great degree (laughs) 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 but um, I kind of thought I would go into or the plan for a while was to go into professional theater management so kind of the not people on stage, not the people backstage but the people kind of behind the scenes you know like doing all the paperwork and accounting and development education outreach marketing and that kind of stuff yeah, all the admin kind of stuff exactly yeah. and I kind of yeah. had this weird plan I never really admitted out loud like maybe I can go to New York and work at one of the big like Broadway or off-Broadway theaters and then on the side I can take like improv classes yeah. and maybe that's what I'll do meanwhile I was still in Florida and was applying for stuff in New York and clearly they wouldn't hire me because I didn't have a New York address which makes perfect sense <laughs> but no I was you know working some and I remember one day I was sitting at home and I was on uh, in a Facebook group for um, alumni of my university's theater program. And somebody just posted something that said, hey, I'm an intern at Iowa West in Los Angeles, and we're doing something called the Scripted Comedy Festival. Um, and people should submit. Here's a link. And I clicked on it. It was mostly like a festival for stand-up comedians and sketch writers. On the bottom of the page was a pilot writing contest. And besides reading uh, Bossy Pants, I've been reading a couple other like screenwriting books, just like stuff in the library. I kind of thought like, oh, everyone says I should write a pilot. How hard can that be? (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to write one. And for reference, this was, I believe, a Sunday and the deadline was Friday. Oh, my God. (laughs) And little naive Alyssa was like, I can do this. This this isn't too hard, right? So, um, yeah, so I I wrote a pilot. Apparently, it had what looked like it it is the shape of a pilot, I guess. It had the three (laughs) acts and everything. I submitted it. And then a few weeks later, I got an email that's like, hey, you're one of the two finalists in the Scripted Comedy Festival. And the final contest is a live stage reading at iowa west in los angeles oh and it's next week uh let us know if you can come i was like oh my god <laughs> i've never been to los angeles before but like within that week i like adjusted my work schedule and traded mm-hmm. shifts with people uh i had a good friend who uh lived in burbank and i called oh, nice. her can I, yeah. I asked if i could sleep on her couch for like three days i like went back on that alumni facebook page and was like hey i'm doing a stage reading and i need actors to read these parts and and anybody available and luckily a lot of people said sure I'll do it and came out to LA for the weekend um did that stage reading also took some little like workshop classes saw some shows just like chatted with everyone while standing in line and when Mm -hmm. I was just backstage and basically everyone said oh if you want to write tv and you want to be serious about it you kind of need to move to LA so um, I did. I just kind of <laughs> packed up a few months later and uh, moved to L.A. And I always say I'm such not a spontaneous person. It was such a spontaneous thing to do, but I did it. And yeah. cutting forward a bit, I ended up getting a full time job as an executive assistant at Legendary Entertainment. Oh, nice. Um, I was in their digital media division. 
for, uh, it was like two and a half years, uh, got laid off from that when they kind of laid off half the department, um, got a job as an executive assistant at uh, Titmouse, which is a, a very large independent animation company. And yeah, I assisted. Huge. Yeah, it's it's getting really big. There's three locations. I, uh, yeah, it was really exciting. I, I was uh, the assistant to the COO who was like nice. a pretty, um, I guess, important person in the company. And uh, I think even in my interview, I said to him and to like the HR person interviewing me, like, yeah, I want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, stick with us. And then, um, yeah, two years later, I was just working. My boss called me and said, hey, we're starting up a new show. The showrunner doesn't have a writer assistant. He's looking for someone interested in preschool. Should I put your name in? And at that point, not that I wasn't interested in preschool, it just never really crossed my radar. Yeah, it's just... Sure. You know, it's interesting. If you want to be a writer and you don't know where to start, you can find hundreds, if not thousands of books and classes Mm -hmm. and lectures and everything about how to either write a uh, feature script or how to write a half hour comedy or an hour long drama. There is like almost nothing out there about how to write a children's or preschool script, especially like a 11, 12 minute thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just was something that like I never really considered because it just didn't feel like I just didn't know anything about right. it. So I was like, you know, I'm really excited just to get in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really want to learn more. And that's how I uh, interviewed with Rob and got onto Frog and Toad. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Cool. And I mean, same thing. I never, when I think of writers, I don't think about writers on preschool or children's programming, which is crazy because there's so much of it. And there's yeah. got to be a huge need for writers in that area. I mean, I'm sure it's still competitive, but there's tons of people working on shows and thinking about my friends who have kids. They have like, mickey mouse club on all day every day and like people are writing those episodes so like it's a huge content area totally yeah i don't hear about it very much it's crazy when i talk to people uh, there's a couple people who are you know write and die preschool that's exactly what they want to do with their life and that's why they came to la and that's what they do a lot of people like me just kind of found their way into it Uh um but i will say it's a really great um community of people because like I said, there's not a whole lot of us. So every once in a while, I'll go to some kind of like mixer or meeting with some other preschool writers and everyone's just genuinely good That's and awesome. nice. Yeah. And there's not like that Hollywood ego. You know, if you, you, you kind of, you have to want to write for preschool. If you're, yeah. if you're not passionate about it, you soon will kind of find your way to the door, I think. Yeah. It's a really nice community. And it's also just because you get to write nice, happy things, right. you know? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So how do you approach that? Because that audience is so young, you know, you can't make a story too complicated. How do you actually get in the headspace to write an episode for a preschooler? You know, it wasn't really that different than writing for, uh, like, I guess any other comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, at least on our show, you, you cut out, you know, what you call like the B and C story. So it's really just kind of one story. Yeah. Every show kind of has their own rhythm to it. You know, it's it's interesting. There's kind of, in a way, two types of preschool shows. You have your very structured curriculum-based shows. So think of like Sesame Street, where the goal of the episode is to learn about the letter A. Yeah. And then you have a show like Frog and Toad, where kind of our, not even goal, but our message is friendship. Friendship Mm -hmm. is nice. And really, um, for Frog and Toad, kind of the underlying thing of every episode is what will Frog do for Toad and what will Toad do for Frog and what will they do together to kind of show their relationship and show that they, you know, are such good friends and that they love each other. 
Um, and really, you know, once you have that, it's not that much different than writing anything else. Although it is interesting, we did get a a kind of like a mini presentation. So Apple has a a PhD of child psychology on staff. Oh, wow. Interesting. And she gave us a really interesting little talk just about from her research and the research out there, what preschoolers can and can't process. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, we couldn't do anything like in an analogy that's too literal. Like you can't say like, oh, man, that's so great. It's on fire because a preschooler is literal. They will think, oh, something is on fire. (laughs) We also couldn't do too much of that on our show, particularly because Apple did release it uh, internationally. Okay. There's a couple of things in the books that we had to keep, but we couldn't do too many like word puns. I think there was Mm -hmm. one thing that got a joke that got cut where they're baking a cake. And one of the characters says, oh, now we add flour and someone and one of them brings over like a flower pot, like a flower. Oh, right. Yeah. right. Um, unfortunately, it's just not a joke that works in other languages. Right. Um, there's a couple other things that were kind of more notes for our uh, storyboard artist, like something I learned. If you think of a frame and you have a character in the frame and let's say they are pointing at something, let's say an apple. And they say, oh, look over there at that apple. You better have the character and that apple in the same frame. Because if you just have a frame of the character pointing and they're pointing off screen and say, oh, look at the apple. And then the next shot is the apple. According to them, preschoolers are going to get very lost. You know, you know, why didn't you show the apple? Even if you show in the next shot, you got to they got to kind of be pointing at things. Just that's just how a preschooler's mind works. Um, If a character says they're going to go somewhere they better go somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. they, you know, you can't say, oh, we're going to the library. And then they go off in a different direction without some kind of explanation. Just mm-hmm. preschoolers, I guess, are literal like that. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the standard, you know, what you can imagine, you know, no, any kind of like vulgar or, right. you know, sure. yeah, yeah, jokes, you know. <laughs> yeah. So whether it's, you know, being a writer's assistant, you know, an assistant to an executive or a writer of an episode, what do you think is the most challenging part of the roles that you've done? Yeah, to me, I think one of the most challenging things is sometimes adapting to a work environment. Um, I used to think, or I still kind of think, if you want to be like a really good executive assistant, you should be able to read that executive's mind and anticipate their needs. And sometimes I have trouble doing that. Um, I had a boss who would, you know, very much ask me like, oh, set a meeting with this person. And I was like, well, is it, do we need it now? Do we need it next week? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is it a Zoom? Is it in person? Is it an hour? Is it a 15 minute call? Like, like, what do you want? And I would, you know, say, oh, I set this call for you ASAP and it's going to be in person. And here is the info. And he's like, oh, that could have been next week and oh you know yeah i don't need that much time with him and yeah it could just be a zoom it's like oh gosh <laughs> it's it's trying sometimes trying to read someone's needs can mm-hmm. be a little hard yeah yeah that's tough um you mentioned the late night writers workshop um with nbc so we've heard a little bit about that program uh we know we know it exists can you tell us more about the ins and outs of applying for it and just what that's like and just to clarify in the exist part, so it's an annual program. Yeah. They last did it in 2020. Okay, um, so yeah, it's kind they of posted thing. something a couple years ago, I, I guess by now that said like, oh, more news coming up. And um, unfortunately, there hasn't been. Um, I yeah. would love for it to come back. I know there's been some executive changes in that department. But yeah, no, it was a really cool program. Um, I know a lot of kind of new writers in LA are familiar with all the fellowships. So Disney mm-hmm. has one, NBC has one, Warner Brothers has one. Uh, this was specifically just uh, a late night one. 
So the packet for that was a LA night packet. So they wanted, I think it was one to two pages of monologue jokes. So monologue jokes being the, when you first watch uh, Jimmy Fallon, for example, kind of the uh, setup punchline, setup punchline based on like Mm -hmm. a new story. They then wanted, it was one to two pages of desk bits. So desk bits are, if it's not a monologue joke and it's not a guest interview, it's kind of everything in between. So Jimmy Fallon has thank you notes, Seth Meyers has jokes Seth can't tell. They wanted uh, not so much scripts of it, but just general ideas. Like if you were to describe jokes that can tell, it's like, oh, Seth comes out with two of his writers and it, you know, just you would explain what it is and maybe give some examples of it. And then they also wanted two sketches. Remember, they wanted one of them to be topical and one to be very character based. And then just like all the other fellowships, I think there was two essays also required for it. Great. So it was kind of a, a lot of stuff, especially because for a lot of these other fellowships, you can work on a script all year right. and then submit it. With late night, you know, you can, you know, I, I was taking like sketch classes at UCB. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, you'd have a good sketch and you'd kind of just save it. But like yeah. when it comes to topical stuff, you got to write a new topical right. sketch. You got to find <laughs> new news stories for the monologue jokes. And that's kind of the problem, not problem, but uh, one of the things about when you actually submit two late night shows, yeah. you can bank some stuff, but for every show you basically are writing new material, which is what makes applying for late night so tricky. Like I've been lucky enough to submit to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver twice. And for that, they said, here is a topic. You're going to write basically one of the uh, topical kind of long monologues John does at the beginning of the show. Here's the topic. Here's like a bunch of research. We found a bunch of like news stories and video clips. Go write us eight pages. (sighs) Wow. And it's due in two weeks. Oh, my God. That's a lot. (laughs) I know you do your own writing outside of your job with Frog and Toad and outside of the fellowships you've done for Reductress. I know you've done it, uh, some other sketch stuff. So I didn't know if you want to talk about that part of your life or career more. Yeah, totally. Um, I have been a contributor or a headline contributor for Reductress for a couple of years now. Um, That's always really fun. I'd been a fan of Reductress for a while before I got a chance to submit. Yeah, it's, it's a fun little like muscle to stretch. I try to submit as much as I can. Uh, they get very picky with their headlines. But yeah, that's always been a lot of fun, especially to kind of look at you know, what is a headline in, let's say, like a magazine like Women's Day or Good Housekeeping and how can we, you know, satirize that? Because the whole kind of model of Reductress is kind of satirizing those like women's right. magazines. Yeah. But besides that, since I wanted to write late night and I was working, you know, these very kind of boring-ish desk job. I was really looking for an outlet and also just looking for a way to meet people and a way just to, you know, I guess get a little bit more on my resume, if you can say. So I started taking classes at UCB and just going to shows and chatting to people. I kind of found myself writing for a couple of late night shows around town, you know, super Mm -hmm. amateur stuff done at UCB in the Pack Theater. But it was really great because, you know, you are, you know, you do want to be a writer. You're working yeah. these, you know, kind of not writing jobs. So it was fun to, you know, meet up with your friends on a weekend right. and write some stuff down together. And then you just put it out on stage and just put it, especially when you can write and and get kind of almost like that immediate uh, satisfaction. Like you do it, you know, for people on stage and they can yeah. laugh. Right. And you're not just writing a script that you who knows who will, yeah. kind of will read, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's really valuable. Yeah, that's cool. And really fun. I mean, I've watched some of your stuff on your website and it's well written, <laughs> but it also looks like you're all having a good time, which I think is really important in any live performance, especially in comedy. Totally. Yeah, it was really yeah definitely. And, yeah. you know, one of the things also about, I guess, being a writer is you got to have a network. 
Yeah. I don't think anyone has, let's say, written for SNL just in a void. They just, you know, did stuff in their room, in, right. in their house, <laughs> and written. You know, you got to get yourself out there. You got to meet people. You got to, you know, kind of put yourself out there. And if anything, just practice. You know, a lot of writing is just kind of muscle memory. So, yeah. you know, like I said, um, sometimes I submit to late night shows and they'll say, you know, write like a page of monologue jokes to like I've submitted to Fallon before. And sometimes you have like barely a week to do it. So, you, you know, being able to do it for a stage show and then come home and also do it and just keep that muscle memory and keep that practice right. going definitely helps whenever you do get that opportunity to actually submit somewhere. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. Yeah. So do you have any moments from your career so far, and this could be from any part of it, that are either just a favorite moment or a moment where you're like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living? Yeah. So, you know, it was really cool. I wrote my episode of Frog and Toad mm -hmm. and then we, you know, recorded it. And it was very cool because not only was I on every record, so I also did something called Circle Take. So as the voiceover artist would uh, say their lines, I'd just take a note of every line they made and, and basically take note of it or what the voice director liked so we can send it off to the editors. But it was cool to do it for my own episode. Like yeah, all of a sudden they're yeah. like reading That's those cool. lines I wrote. <laughs> and we had some really cool voiceover artists. So um, we just did a premiere party for Frog and Toad. And one of our supporting cast members is Tom Kenny, who's kind of most famously known as being the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah. yeah. And I, like many people, grew up on that show. <laughs> so, was, And I met him at the party. And we had met on Zoom we did all of our records basically virtually. Okay. So I was always in my apartment or in an yeah. office instead of in the, the record booth. So I finally got to like say, hey, I was on the records and it's nice to meet you in person. We had like a whole conversation. It was and first of all, great guy. Yeah. It was just one of those like, oh man, like this feels very kind of like Hollywood. Like, oh, yes. voice, <laughs> one of those like most iconic characters ever. Yeah. And we worked together and now we're having just a conversation mm -hmm. at this party. Yes, that's, that's awesome. pretty awesome. And SpongeBob is a great example of children's programming, but the writing's so good that yeah. it's kind of all ages. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And I think like not not to plug Frog and Toad, but you know we you know Apple had to categorize it as something, so it's a preschool right. show. But I yeah. definitely think anyone of any age can enjoy mm -hmm. it. It's just super sweet. It's yeah. very chill. Um, I've seen some people on Twitter say they love it. So, yeah. well, it's always great. I mean, that's why it's important to hire, you know, like writers for children's programming because you want it to appeal to more than just preschool, right? Because their parents are watching it, their siblings yeah. might be watching it. So, the, the wider appeal it has, I mean, obviously the core is for preschool, but. You know, it can really it can really speak to a lot of different age groups. Right. Absolutely. I uh, chat with people uh, now who have kids and, yeah. you know, I've been trying to watch a little bit more preschool stuff myself, just know what's out there. And you can tell what the parents like is what mm -hmm. gets put on more often right. because if the parents don't like it, they will do what they can to avoid putting yes. it on. Because once again, <laughs> they control the remote. They're the adults. Yeah. <laughs> of course. That makes sense. Yeah. So we got one more question for you, Alyssa, before we move on. Um, but that question is, what advice do you have for people who are interested in getting into either a writer support role, um, a writer role, or just the entertainment world in general? Yeah, I would say it's really important to make friends hmm. and for various reasons. One, L.A. can be a very tough city. Uh, the entertainment industry is a very tough industry. I know a lot of people like me moved here without having a lot of connections or any family in the area. So you definitely just need people to rely on, you know, when times are good, when times are bad, just, just, 
just when you want to get dinner. Um, it's important to have that social network around you. But in addition to that, I'm not saying use your friends, but I am saying um, if I was ever in the position where I could hire a bunch of people, I know the first place I will turn are my friends. It's not just friends. It's like these connections you make. I have been to a million uh, different like writer networking right. things out here where it's just a bunch of writers and they're getting together and we're all networking. And, you know, I've made some good connections there, but, you know, if someone is trying to, is going about to hire writers, you know, are they going to hire, you know, that person they chatted with five minutes or at a bar at a networking or someone they've known for the last 10 years right. that they're really good friends with that they've read their stuff and passed back and forth. Um, it's their friends. And what's cool is sometimes when you get into, you know, this industry and you start out and you do stuff like little shows at UCB or the Pack Theater, you're just making friends with people. And, you know, as you all work together and get more experience, you know, you all kind of rise up and you all kind of rise up together mm -hmm. and you're able to have that network of good connections and yeah. people who will, once again, will be there emotionally and who will also, you know, hopefully help with your career as well. Well, let's get to our featured film. Today, we're discussing 2006 comedy drama, The Devil Wears Prada. It was written by Aileen Brosh McKenna and Lauren Weisberger. It was directed by David Frankel. It stars Anne Hathaway, Meryl Streep, Adrian Grenier, Emily Blunt, and Stanley Tucci. So, Susan, before you, we get into it, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Yes. So this movie takes place in New York, and we meet freshly graduated Andy Sachs, or Andrea, as her boss soon calls her. Um, she's trying to get kind of any job in journalism, and she's told that if she can work for Miranda Priestly, who's the editor-in-chief of Runway Magazine, which is pretty much, she's pretty much Anna Winter of Vogue, sort of who that character's based on, um, then after a year of that, she can work for whoever she wants. So she takes this job as Miranda's second assistant. Yes. Because um, Emily Blunt is the first assistant. Yes. And we just see, like, sort of the nightmare it is to work for <laughs> Miranda Priestly. Um, we also have um, Andrea lives with her boyfriend, Nate, who's an aspiring chef. And we see the struggles their relationship goes through just with Andy's job being so demanding. Nate not really liking the person she's turning into. And we also see her friend struggle with that. And just all the choices Andy has to make related to working for Runway and Miranda Priestly. And I'm sure we'll talk about the ending as we go, but that's sort of just an overview. Yeah. So, Alyssa, you chose this movie for us to watch today. Why did you choose The Devil Wears Prada? Oh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I definitely lived that assistant life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been Andy. And luckily, I will say this in case old bosses are watching. Um, I've never had a Miranda Priestley as a boss. Okay. It's never been that bad. Um, <laughs> but I have had some like interesting asks as an assistant. I remember one time my we my company was doing some work with a, a company in South Korea. And my boss said, oh, we like we want to send them a gift basket. Can you send a, a gift basket to Korea? And I was like, I... I, I don't even know where to begin with that. <laughs> um, one time um, for a different uh, boss, uh, one of our uh, co-workers was on vacation in Spain and she was uh, proposed to and it was great. And my boss was like, you know, I want to send her like a bottle of champagne. Mm -hmm. Can you call up the hotel in Barcelona and see if we can get like a bottle of champagne delivered? And once again, I was like, I don't even I don't speak Spanish. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. Um, so every once in a while you get this kind of weird yeah. random tasks. Yeah. There are times where you feel a little like, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, I did have a boss who was a bit of um, 
I don't know if I'd say a workaholic, but he he worked very long hours. And that kind of caused me to be almost always stressed and on my phone and keeping track of where he was or what he was doing. Um, So I definitely lived the Andy life. And I think it's almost like a good, um, you know, if someone's trying to get into the industry and they want to start as an assistant, it's not hopefully going to be that bad, but at least you can get kind of a look at kind of what it looks like, a little bit of fictionalized version of it. Um, The other reason I chose it is, honestly, I can't decide if I love or hate this movie. I go back and forth all the time. Sometimes I agree with the characters, sometimes I Mm -hmm. don't. Um, and I just needed someone to talk about it with. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. That's what we're here I for. I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. Especially about some of the characters, including the boyfriend, Nate. Yes, the yes. boyfriend, Nate. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's get into the book. So <laughs> let me preface this conversation by saying at the beginning, I was looking for... I forgot Ben had never seen this movie when we watched it because I've seen it a lot. And I'm like, how have you never seen it? I've never seen this movie and I know it's very famous. I should have seen it already, but I hadn't. And Sue's seen this a lot. Yeah. So going into this... You know, she had mentioned at the beginning of the movie that she didn't like the boyfriend. And about halfway through, I'm like, this boyfriend is being fine. Like he's having reasonable requests at until a point in the movie where he he gets mad at her for like having a demanding job. Then, you know, the relationship really starts falling apart. Right. And then I'm like, okay, I get it. He's not being supportive. He's being a jerk. But overall, I would say he's not the villain of this movie. It's the other guy that's the creep that I hated. Oh, oh, yeah. I hated that guy. What's his (laughs) name? Christian. Christian. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. That guy was awful. Yeah. Yeah, The boyfriend. It's it's interesting because I guess the the debate is, you know, how much do you change yourself for the job or how much do you dedicate yourself to the job? And it's like I kind of see both sides of it. It's like, first of all, I don't think Andy changed that much. I don't think she did either. It's like just her a clothes, makeover. Really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but she was still the same, like, genuine good right. person. Yes. She's never really, like, a backstabber. Like, Miranda does a whole thing like, oh, you're the reason Emily's not here. And she's just yeah. like, I'm just doing my job. Right. Yeah. I'm here because my boss told me I had to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then Nate is like, like, it's one thing I, I get also the work-life balance. Yes. And that's what Andy has trouble with. Yeah. And you do kind of want to say... You know what? If you don't have a good work work life balance, quit. You, yeah. You know, like your your family and your friends are the most important things. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, question mark. It's just one of those. Sometimes you have to take a bad job. Yeah. Especially Andy, very clearly from the beginning of the movie, it's you know work for one year, yeah. get the one year experience, yeah. and then leave. And I would argue too, do doctors going through med school not work crazy hours? Right. Are you going to say, don't go to med school, yeah. you're sacrificing your personal life. Mm-hmm. Or I know people also in law school, they go through also some crazy hours studying yeah. for like the bar and stuff. Do you ever say, oh man, you know, don't do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. You just sometimes have to get through a rough patch. And also... Nate wants to be a chef. So how is he not also having some insane starter job where he has to work in a kitchen till like 2 a.m. every night? Absolutely. (laughs) That dude never works. I'm like, he should be in the same boat. And then they can relate to each other. Like, we just got to do this a year and then we can have better schedules. But like, we just have to get through this year. And that's what I, but like on the rewatch, I was like, I guess he's not as bad as I remember. Because he is just trying to be like, hey, don't forget who you are. But yeah, I'm very conflicted about him. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, I get she misses his birthday party. That does suck. But once again, you know what? Maybe I'm a little bit more, you know, what's what's the saying? You either live to work or work to live. I might be a little bit more of like a live to work kind of thing because I am, you know, 
passionate about my job and stuff yeah. like that. But it's just one of those like, sorry, you know, yeah. every once in a while, something comes up. Right. On this particular day, she had to go to not just like, you know, stay late for a meeting, but go to like, what was it like an entire gala? Yeah, full of like dignitaries from all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> I bet she yeah. could have also gotten him an invite. Just right. say, hey, yeah. throw on a suit, meet me here. Mm-hmm. Right. I just feel like she didn't forget his birthday. But she just had to work. And there's going to be some moment, if he wants to be a chef, there's going to be a night where her birthday falls on a Saturday that he's not going to be able to hang oh, out Oh, absolutely. He has to be at a restaurant because that's when people go out to eat. <laughs> like, absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah, I will say I did, I really like the Andy character. I mean, as someone who yeah. like has a demanding job and like having the friends who don't always respect that or understand that, I get that struggle. And, you know, you had mentioned that she doesn't change that that much in this movie, but what I think she learns is she learns how far, what she's willing to sacrifice to get where she wants to be. Right. Because at the end it's when Miranda calls her out, be like, like, well, you actually took Emily's spot on this trip. You did take advantage of someone to get what you wanted. That's when she realized, Oh, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's my line, right? That's the, that's where the moment where she quits and she changes her life and says, mm-hmm. okay, that's kind of like the lesson she learned. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I thought Anne Hathaway was great in this. Everybody mm. in this movie is amazing. It's a great cast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they all do a really nice job. I thought Meryl Streep, of course, I don't know if she won an Oscar, but she was nominated for some awards for this. But she is great in it, um, even though that character is abusive. And, you know, I think there's been a, since 2006 when this movie came out, there's been a huge evolution of like workplace yeah. ethics. At least, mm-hmm. you know, not I know that's not always sunshine and rainbows, but this is a toxic work environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do think even Anna Winters gotten some started getting like, you know, people started calling out a little bit in I real mean, life. She's you still mean? the editor in chief of Vogue. Yeah. Who this character is based on. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, this this is based on a book and that book is based on I'm pretty sure the writer's time working at Vogue. I think so. Yeah. yeah something like that. So. OK. I thought it was a great story. And, you know, fashion is something I understand nothing about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not my cup of tea. But I like when characters are passionate about what they're doing. And, you know, Stanley Tucci is so passionate about how fashion is art that's wearable, which mm-hmm. I thought was a really interesting point. Because at the first, I thought the story would be like she t- gets all these new clothes and all these new friends and everything. And then she ends up realizing that she wanted what she had before and she goes back to her but she doesn't she she keeps the new clothes right mm-hmm. and she gives away some of the stuff to you know to mm-hmm. the other emily assistant right but she becomes kind of this new person and so it's not about going back to who she was it's about who she discovers who she really wants to be yeah and can i even say even as like oh she changed or whatever i would also kind of argue she is just learning maybe a little bit more about the job you know if yeah yeah you know like I just interviewed for a job recently for a show I hadn't really watched a lot of so you know what I got that subscription and I watched the show mm-hmm. you know I in that's a, one of her mistakes by when the beginning of the movie was to be like who's Miranda you know right. if, yeah. if you're yeah. going to interview yeah. for a job yeah <laughs> don't know who the, you're talking to the tiniest bit of research <laughs> Especially um, for a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, since I've started working at Titmills, I've definitely been paying more attention to animation, like Mm -hmm. the business of animation, the industry, the shows out there. And I would argue too, like her, you know, it's not that she just put on fancy clothes because all of a sudden she wants to change who she is. I think she was just kind of starting to appreciate, oh, you know, there there is more to this than I thought. And let Mm -hmm. me learn more about it and get more 
into it. And also, like, I think she was getting those clothes for free. Those were yes. nice clothes. Yeah, like, right. Let, like, her enjoy, the clothes. let her enjoy wearing Valentino to, like, a Monday afternoon meeting. Like, that's um, that insane. stuff is expensive. So <laughs> yeah. she got that for free? Like, yeah, keep right. it. And she, like, she even she was giving that uh, stuff away to her friends. Like, she shows up to a bar that night. She's yeah. like, I have goodies. And then they're like, well, you work too much. And it's like, I just gave you a free $1,700 bag that I got from work. So I don't know. <laughs> and you were excited about it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, I definitely throughout the movie i see andy struggle and i think it's a cool parallel at the end where andy says to miranda kind of the big climax is that stanley tucci's character is supposed to design for a big brand yeah like james James holt is starting like a worldwide brand and he's going to be like in charge of running it or something right and meanwhile miranda might be replaced by um, another editor and then the big reveal is miranda kind of manipulated things so she got what she wanted, but Nigel didn't. And Andy mm-hmm. said, you know, I can't believe you did that to Nigel, Stanley Tucci's character. And that's when she says, oh, well, you did the same to Emily. And mm-hmm. I, I I, do love the parallel, mm-hmm. but it's like, are they equal parallels? Right. You know, did, did, I don't think they're. No. Yeah, like Andy, she never went out and sabotaged Emily. Mm-hmm. She didn't like push her in front of that car. She gets hit right. by, you know, she's just <laughs> trying to do her job. Mm-hmm. Miranda is the one who you know, really did some really sketchy, yeah. unethical, underhanded things. And, you know, she said, oh, well, it's for the good of the magazine. You know, mm-hmm. they, Runway can't survive without me. Once again, I'm not sure if the parallels play, which is what right. confuses me so much about this movie. It's I like, know. I don't know how to feel. Yes. Yeah. It's very confusing. It's a very conflicting movie. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Is, yeah. is the character Miranda, Meryl Streep's character, is she the villain of the movie? The movie's literally called The Devil Wears yeah. Prada. Yeah. I think she is. She is the one who gives, if if you look at Andy as the protagonist, mm-hmm. she is the one who challenges the protagonist the yes. most. Sure. Yes. Yeah. That um, makes sense. Yeah. And she is kind of, yeah, she, she is kind of the mean person, the mm-hmm. one everyone has to work around and tiptoe around. And right. Yeah. It's, I think it's tough because I do humanize her a little bit, like with her daughters. Towards and the with, end. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Divorce, yes. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, you're wondering, like, how much of this is she feeling like she has to do because she's a woman running an entire magazine, which is, mm. you know, like, even now is probably not common, but in right. 2006, less common, and before that, even less common. Yeah. So, I don't know. But, I mean, I would class her as the villain for the most part, but maybe the point is that she's not supposed to be, like, just a one-faceted, you know, like, mm-hmm. one-dimensional villain. She's supposed to be, like, a whole human sure. who's doing bad stuff, but... You also see this side of her and Andy sees it. And that's why I think Andy, you know, runs to warn her about the James Holt thing and, you know, sympathizes with her. She's like, oh, this woman's seen as kind of a monster and everyone Mm -hmm. kind of fears her, but she gets to see a different side of her, too. Oh, totally. As much as I said, like, this is a dramatized, um, like, assistant story. At the same time, unfortunately, there are still bosses out there. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just like, like in real life. Um, there are a few super villains out there in yeah. real life, yeah. but most people are not. And and like you said, most care- people are, you know, shades of gray. Are, yes. You know, really what's funny about the whole thing is this is about a fashion magazine. You know, yeah. they're not performing brain surgery, which right. is what I also say right. about yeah. animation too. Like every once in a while when we think we're in a crisis on our show, it's like we're making cartoons. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be fine. You yeah, guys are making sure. a magazine about florals for spring. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, guys, we found it. We found the movie where Meryl Streep is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
we like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Who Wore It Better? It's common in movies and TV for actors to play the same character in different films or shows, and we're going to see how many of those you know. So, Alyssa, you're going to be playing against Susan. So here are the rules. I'm going to name multiple actors. As soon as you know the character in common that they both played or all played, shout the character's name. If you're wrong, the other player will get a chance to steal. I have five characters for you all to identify, and the first person named three correctly will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? Some Life in the Credits merchandise, like a more shirt or a mug or a bag, something like that. Yes. Yay. High stakes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Alyssa, are you ready to play? I think so. All right, Susan? I'm ready. Let's all right. do it. Here are your actors for your first character. Mark Hamill. Joker. Yes. Oh, oh nice. Alyssa. I was <laughs> expecting to have to go way further down the list. That was amazing. You know what? He He's a great actor, but he might be known for maybe two things. And I <laughs> yeah, don't I think mean, I've seen another yeah, Luke Skywalker. I, yeah, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. No, that was awesome. <laughs> so the other actors I had written down were Jared Leto. Okay. Joaquin Phoenix, Jack Nicholson, and Heath Ledger. But Alyssa only needed one, so that was very impressive. Nice job. That was impressive. All right, so Alyssa's on the on the board with okay. one point, and here is your second actor, or your second character. First actor, Emily Blunt. Second actor, Julie Andrews. Mary Poppins? Yes, oh, Susan. Okay. Very good. So Susan's I on the board. Emily Blunt played, played Mary Poppins. Yes, she was in the new version. Yeah. So, all right, one to one. One to one. Here is your next character, first actor, Henry Cavill. Superman? I'm sorry, that's not correct. Oh, that's I should have listened to more names. Susan, do you want to answer before we? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> your next actor is Robert Downey Jr. What role did both of those? Yes, guys? what indeed. Yeah. Your third one, this is harder, by the way. Yeah. Your third one, Sir Ian McKellen. Your fourth actor is Will Farrell. What? All of these people played the same what? character. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of what was it Sir Ian McKellen and Will Farrell yes. have in common. Yes. Yeah. This is extremely difficult. What do any of them have? And I can't think I think I think number five is going to give it away. You guys ready? Okay. Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, Sherlock Holmes? Yes! Oh. Very good, Alyssa. When did Will Ferrell play Sherlock he Holmes? He did a Holmes and Watson movie with, oh. with John C. Riley. I don't I remember, remember that. that yeah. Uh, and then Sir Ian McKellen also did a Mr. Holmes movie. Yeah, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. did the famous yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Now, once, yeah. I and then Henry that. Cavill is in the new Enola Holmes movies. Oh, that's a show, I thought. No, no, the show, no it's a movie. They're is Netflix it? Okay, movies. They're just, okay. Um, so, and then of course, Benedict Cumberbatch has the famous BBC show. Right. Good job, guys. Nice that was job. hard. That was, yeah. Man. All right. So you're still in the lead now, Alyssa. Two to one. We got two more to go. If Alyssa gets one more point, she wins. Okay. Your next actor is Russell Crowe. Robin Hood. Yes. Uh, ooh. <laughs> Good job, Susan. You only needed one name for that one. The other actors. Well, the other, I was thinking gla Gladiator, but that's not a character's name. <laughs> <laughs> Maximus. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. So the other actors were Sean Connery. Uh, Carrie Elwes, 
Kevin oh. Costner, and of course Errol Flynn from The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is a great movie. I don't uh, think good I job. Done that. Well done. All right, we've got one more to go, and yeah. it's the hardest of all. So here's the deal: oh. it's scored two to two. Yeah. So whoever gets this point will Wins. win our game. Okay. High stakes. Here yeah. we go. Your first actor is Claire Foy. Oh, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Wow! What? Amazing! Oh yes, that is correct, Alyssa, and you nice win. Nice job. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I thought this was going to be way harder. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, your other actors were Olivia Coleman, Emma Thompson, and Helen Mirren. They all wow. played Queen Elizabeth II. Well, congratulations. That was incredible. Good job, Alyssa. Uh -huh. I'm glad I watched that one season of The Crown. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah. Um, please watch Frog and Toad on Apple TV+. Plus. It's now out. It's very adorable. It's very <laughs> cute. I worked on it for two years, so I'm super excited that it's finally out for everyone yes. to see. Besides that, I have a website. It's just <laughs> alyssafeller.com. Um, I've got some of uh, my reductress stuff. I also have a lot of late night samples whenever I uh, submit to a late night show and know that I'll never use that sample again because everything is super topical. I put it on my website. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and besides that, I'm on um, Instagram sometimes and Twitter less often, but my social media is Alyssa underscore Feller. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. This was great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. This has been fun. Thank you, guys. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSongs.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at LifeInTheCredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Well, guys, we found it. We found the movie where Meryl Streep is amazing. <laughs> <laughs>